Welcome to the Pain Solutions Podcast. Dr. Wayne Fimister is a family physician with a special interest in chronic pain, whose passion is finding solutions for this epidemic problem facing one-third of the adult population. He is a clinical associate professor at the University of British Columbia in Canada and has developed one of the first online medical trigger point injection courses for doctors and nurse practitioners, a technique that is easily learned and implemented into the medical office of any doctor or nurse practitioner treating chronic pain. To get free access to Pain Solutions newsletter, blogs, and to register for his online course, simply register at www.waynefimister.com. On the podcast, Dr. Wayne brings together experts from various segments to share with you how they solve people's pain problems and how you can get this treatment too. And now, here's your host, Dr. Wayne Fimister. Well, hello and good evening, everyone. Welcome to the podcast show. And tonight, my very special guest is Dr. Forrest Tennant. Thank you for coming on, Dr. Tennant. My pleasure to be here. So, Dr. Tennant has been in chronic pain management since 1975. Originally, he was treating pain of cancer and also post-polio pain. But since then, he's developed his career. He's published over 300 articles and books. He now serves as the emeritus of the Practical Pain Management, the nation's most widely circulated pain journals for physicians. And in a previous time, he was also a medical officer with the US Army, U.S. Public Health Service, and also a consultant to the U.S. Food, Drug, and Administration. He's also been on the board for the National Institute of Drug Abuse and also the Drug Enforcement Administration. So thank you so much. I just really appreciate your time. I know you're a busy man. You do lots of traveling still. And um, you've come on the show tonight because we're going to talk about the thorny subject of opioids and what is going on in our country with the use of this medication uh, class. So first of all, can you just take us back in time? You know, where did you grow up and go to university and study medicine? My basic career is this. I was an internal medicine specialist by trade, but I served uh, as an army officer and and in fact went to medical school on behalf of the army and served uh, in the army during the Vietnam War era. At that time, and most people aren't, old enough to know this or realize this, but it was during the Vietnam War era that the public first started understanding that opioids would be abused, could be abused, and I was very involved in trying to deal with the opioid problem as an Army medical officer during Vietnam. And after the war, we had the first opioid epidemic, if you want to look at it that way, and so I was transferred from the Army to the Public Health Service, and I was in Los Angeles, and we started the methadone clinics and treatment for heroin addicts. During that time, we found out that some regular pain patients who weren't addicts at all needed help for treatment of severe intractable pain. Now, many of these patients were cancer patients, some had had polio, others had other rare diseases. And so chronic pain treatment really started back in the 1970s, but it was a very small thing, and it was kind of a backwater thing done by a few of us on a voluntary basis for many, many years. No one had any idea that we would end up with what we have today, uh, which was a combination of drug addicts on the one hand, and on the other hand, 
some severe medical patients who need help with opioids. And it has been this conflict between drug addiction and legitimate opioid use that's brought about the controversy and the animosity and the deaths and the tragedies and the chaos we see today. It's just total chaos today relative to this opioid problem because society has not been able to understand the difference between opioid addiction and opioid use for severe chronic pain. Okay, so you have brought up a very good point. Can you just describe maybe in a very simple way to the audience, what is the difference between a drug addict, say on heroin, versus a pain patient with severe intractable pain? This is an easy thing for us physicians who deal with it. And it's very, very simple. As a physician who's worked with both problems, addiction problem and the pain problem, it's very easy. If a patient is sitting in front of you, you can tell an addict from a pain patient by about two simple questions. A drug addict will tell you very openly, usually, I take my heroin or I take my opioids for a purpose other than pain. And a pain patient is going to say, you know, I have this terrible pain in my back, my head, my knee, my toe, and I take these opioids for pain purposes. It's as simple as that. This is not a complex problem. It's just that people can't get it through their head that that's the way you determine how this all works. So what's led to this chaos then, if it's so simple? It has to do primarily with we have in government agencies, professional organizations, insurance companies, groups of people who have never dealt with this issue. And we have a lot of people out there in all walks of life, in the government, in insurance companies, universities, medical organizations, who have read something or think they know something, but they've never really talked to these people. They need to go into the prisons and talk to drug addicts. They need to go to the methadone programs and talk to drug addicts. And they need to go to pain clinics and talk to people who have pure pain. So we have a lot of people who are in decision-making roles, making decisions based on non-observation and non-contact with these people. It's as simple as that. This is not a difficult thing. It's just that people think they know, but they've never really dealt with these two populations of people. And it is unusual in society, and the medical profession, like myself, never dawned on me that we would have people in high government positions, elected and non-elected, who are making decisions about drug addicts, but they've never treated drug addicts. They're making decisions about pain patients, and they've never talked to the pain patient or their family. So what we have is a lot of people who think they know, but they've never really talked with these people, examined these people, treated these people. And so we have, frankly, in my opinion, a lot of well-meaning ignorance making decisions. Right, right. And that's something that I've, I've also heard. The difference really is the people that make the decisions are not the ones who are running the clinics and seeing the patients. You know, myself being a family physician for about 18 years, I've come across this myself with the challenge. And I, I once bought a clinic with full of chronic pain patients, high narcotic use, and ended up in a lot of hot water, really because I just thought I was doing the right thing and you know, doing the drug screens, and, but prescribing high doses. And, um, I got the stark reality of being in trouble 
and having to face my superiors and explain why, you know, why do I prescribe all this medication? Yeah. Well, it, it's quite a shock if you've never really worked with it. I can tell you a real quick vignette on how I got into pain treatment. I was really an addictionologist and we were running methadone clinics and it turned out that back in the 70s, we had some non-addict patients who had pain but couldn't get treatment and they came into the methadone clinics to get methadone. And I was tipped off to it by the drug addicts. The drug addicts says, Doc, these people here are not addicts. They're here for some other reason. We don't understand it, but they're not drug addicts and they don't belong in this clinic. And that's how I got into pain treatment. I started realizing that there are patients who need narcotics or need opioids who aren't addicts. And an addict knows an addict from one to another and a pain patient sort of knows who they are. And so society has to understand that these two populations are different. And uh, I think the one other thing about this whole crisis that needs to be said, everybody's throwing arrows, everybody's blaming everybody. But you know, I think this just kind of came upon everybody very suddenly and wasn't prepared for it. But I do see signs that people are starting to get educated, they're starting to understand the difference between addiction and legitimate pain and are starting to work our way out of this, may take a little more time, but I see some positive things coming out of this. Okay, so you've mentioned the crisis. You know, what is going on with the prescribing of opioids now versus the death rates that we're seeing? We have something that is not new. Today, the people who are overdosing and dying are the same people who always overdosed and died with opioids. And these are the street people. And I call them street people because these are the people who are young. The average age of somebody who overdoses today, if you look at the statistics, is about 18 or 20 years of age. Now, the average pain patient who needs opioids for pain is around 45 or 50 or 55. So you've got this tremendous age difference if you just look at the very basic facts. So who's overdosing and dying? It's people who are the drug abusers. The drug addicts, they're out there buying drugs on the street, and now they have this terrible problem is that they're not just getting heroin, they're getting fentanyl, they're getting some prescription drugs still, but they're getting drugs through clandestine illegal circles, and now with the fentanyl and may have something called sufentanyl, these people are getting drugs and are overdosing and dying, but they're the people who are out there on the street, these are the drug abusers, these are the people in the inner cities, generally in the poor communities, and they are people who are probably basically drug addicts, but they can't control their dosage and they overdose and die. And of course, if you look at the statistics about overdoses, nothing has changed. If you look at the toxicology, meaning what's in the blood and urine of people who overdose and die, they've got all kinds of drugs in the blood and the urine. And so these are drug abusers who are taking drugs by the handful. Now, Who's to blame for that? Well, there's a lot of blame to go around. You can blame the people. You can blame their parents. You can blame society. You can say they ought to have drugs legalized. Society has not been able to deal with these issues. Let me emphasize that. There is something about opioids and drug abuse that's very emotional. And I guess the emotions on such issues as abortion and politics and religion and things like this. Opioids are something that society doesn't seem to be able to deal with. 
and let's hope that they can. I can't find anything in history that says that society can deal with opioids objectively and legitimately and get a consensus. And I think that's the fear about all of this. Tragedy keeps marching on because we can't seem to have people get together in a room and legitimately and objectively say who needs help with opioids and who is abusing opioids and who's making money selling these opioids. It's just too emotional. I don't know quite where it goes because of this emotionalism and failure to talk to the other side, failure to get together and get a consensus on what this is all about. Okay, I have a question regarding the dose of opioids, because that's one thing I've encountered in my career was, you know, it was introduced that we should have patients brought down from whatever dose down to 200 milli equivalents of morphine. And then since that, 100 milli equivalents of morphine are even less. So do you, is there any science behind that? Any proof that that actually works? Well, not really. The other thing about opioids that everybody has to understand, we have for many, many years known that don't give opioids to anybody until everything else has failed. When you're treating pain, I mean, the World Organization literally clear back in 1982, go back to that, that's 40 years ago, actually came out with the standards that you don't give opioids for chronic pain until everything else has failed. Physical therapy has failed, non-opioid drugs have failed, and you give opioids. Because we've known for many, many years, if you give opioids for 10 or 20 days, you create a tolerance, you create a biochemical change in the body, and so then to start taking people off suddenly, all you do is put their life in danger. So we have uh, this situation where opioids for pain should never be used except chronically, except as a last resort. And we did have this problem in the 90s and, and before people thought they could put opioids in long-acting preparations and make them less abusable and less addictive, and that wasn't true. And some of us spoke up about that back there, but we weren't listened to then. They're listening now, but it's a little too late. So these people who are being what we call legacy patients, meaning they've been on high dosages for many years, to up and stop them suddenly is a danger to them. They may die and withdrawal. They may commit suicide. They may get their immune system suppressed and get an infection and die. So deaths are common among people who have opioids taken away suddenly. Now, What's interesting, nobody would think to take a drug addict who's on opioids, like heroin, and take them off suddenly. I mean, look at methadone regulations. They're highly regulated to where the dosage has to be reduced every day, but all of a sudden they think they can do that to a pain patient, just cut them off. That's not only inhumane, it's dangerous, should never be done, and the people who are preaching this and advocating this really are, maybe they're well-meaning, but it's such disastrous ignorance it's it's not even funny yes absolutely you know I've, I've had several patients over the years who who have subsequently died because of you know this uh, I, I went out and did some consulting just today and saw patients who were being cut off high dosages of opioids just suddenly and these people if they live through it will be lucky and if they live through it they'll probably be bed bound and totally disabled because they can no longer get their opioids. Well, maybe they shouldn't have been put on their opioids, but there's another myth out there, and that is once on these opioids, they can just be cut off. 
that can't happen. So are you still in practice now with all your experience? Are you still working in California? I've actually closed my clinic because of the controversies. All I'd ever treated was rare cases that needed different high dosages. And today, that's uh, all been regulated out of practice. We're supposed to have laws to protect that kind of practice, but that's is not being followed. And so I'm just doing research now, totally research and publishing. So I'm not retired, but I'm not doing active clinical practice like I was. So what advice would you give our audience for a great resource to read on this subject? Maybe something you've written yourself or suggest? There are very few resources. Uh, I've tried to write a few things and have them on my own websites. But you know, what's interesting about this is that there's almost nothing written. Let me give you an example. A few years ago, the big controversial CDC or Center for Disease Control Center guidelines, which said that physicians should not prescribe over 90 milligrams of morphine, except in unusual cases. But you guess what? No criteria were written on who needs these high dosages. Think about this for a moment. You can't find one sentence written by the government who publishes these regulations on who qualifies to get these opioids and who qualifies to get these higher dosages. Now, they have all these enforcements and all these regulations now to where they've taken all, practically all physicians out of prescribing opioids in the country, but there are no published guidelines. So if there are no guidelines for physicians, how are you going to get any guidelines for, doc- for patients? In other words, all this is being done without anybody putting things in writing and all the enforcement agencies, they're not putting out, well, what are the criteria if you say this doctor is not prescribing correctly? Well, where's the criteria showing that he's not? Now, we have all kinds of criteria to prescribe insulin, antibiotics, heart failure drugs, high blood pressure drugs. Well, where's the guidelines for opioids? There aren't any. Wow. I'd like to just thank you for bringing home, you know, a very very simple message that there's no real research behind it. There's no real advice for doctors. And there's also very little advice for patients. And I guess it's just one day at a time. And if you find a physician that can help you, you're in luck with this situation. And if not, it's a very, very difficult ride, a very difficult path to go down. Let me me just tell you a fact that might be hard to believe. You're talking to the only person in the North American continent who has ever written any guidelines on who should get high-dose opioids. Thanks, that one. Forrest Tennant is the only one who ever wrote those. Now, that's a travesty. There's been no professional organization who's done it. Been no hospital, no insurance company, and no government agency. They'll tell you that they don't like what you're doing, but they won't tell you how to do anything and, and think about that for just a moment. I mean, well, at least we know what the guidelines are if you have drunk driving. At least we know what the guidelines are if you, you know, prescribe most drugs. But opioids, everybody wants to blame everybody, but nobody wants to tell you how to do it. Well, that is shocking. Is there any final last comments you want to leave for our audience tonight? Quietly behind the scenes, myself and maybe a handful of others, have been trying to find ways to reduce opioid use. And we've had a lot of success. It's not well appreciated. 
that opioid prescribing in North America is way down in the last five years. And that's not all just regulations. Coming forth over the last four or five years are all kinds of new measures, protocols, procedures, and drugs that have allowed opioid use to be cut down among physicians without having them forced down. And, and also, there's a lot known now about these patients who have to take high-dose opioids. Anyway, the bottom line is, again, real simple. Those of us who had to deal with opioids knew that this was nothing the way we wanted to go. And so there's a lot of research out there to show that we've got a lot of alternatives these days. It is rare that to take a new patient and have to use high-dose opioids. The high, people on high-dose opioids were ones that were put on opioids years ago when there was no alternative. So quietly behind the scenes, a lot of very good new developments in science and research has occurred. And of course, you never hear about it. You never hear a thing about it. But the fact of the matter is, pain treatment today has got a lot of great new things. Treatment of addiction is a lot of great new things. But the positive aspects of this have been overlooked. There's been a lot of tragedies. And I actually think in the long run, if, if doctors and the researchers and the nurses and the pharmacists and all the medical people are given a chance, they've developed a lot of great things out there these days for both the addict as well as for the pain patient. And these things are being covered up, obscured, they're not being given credit. But the, from my point of view, we have a lot more tools in the toolbox today than we did 10 years ago, and that's not being appreciated at all. Sometimes I think they want to keep the opioid crisis out there on the front page of the news to obscure all the great things that are going on. Well, listen, thank you for that parting comment and giving us a little bit of hope. As a world leader in this field, I really Thank you for coming in and giving me your time to share your ideas, thoughts, and experience because you've been in the field for almost 50 years. And again, thank you so much. My pleasure.